Hi, this is Steve Chernosky, and this is Bridge Street. The Delaware River was named 2020 River of the Year by American Rivers, a national river conservation organization. There were many reasons cited. Some included federal, regional, and state enforcement of clean water safeguards. However, one unheralded champion that has helped is trying to make a comeback. The freshwater bivalves that include mussels, which have played a part. Dr. Danielle Krieger explains her work at the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary and is trying to literally grow the population of mussels throughout the Delaware River watershed. I spoke with her on July 15th. My name is Danielle Krieger. I am the science director at the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, which is a nonprofit uh, that coordinates the Delaware Estuary Program for the watershed. So we mainly uh, work, work to restore and protect the natural resources in the Delaware River Basin, uh, with a particular focus on the lower half of the estuary. And for listeners up here, uh, we're based in the New Hope and Lambertville area. So the estuary, we're a little, I, I would guess, north of the estuary. Uh, the estuary, I think, would begin uh, a little north of Trenton and Morrisville, if I'm correct, and then it goes all the way down to the bay. Is that uh, right on? Right on. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the textbook definition of an estuary is tidally influenced, or you yep. know, influenced by the daily tides. Um, you know, which the head of tide is there just above Trenton, as you say. But the Delaware Estuary Program, or the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, is um, not sort of limited by the head of the tide. So, for instance, our study area goes all the way up the Schuylkill to the headwaters. I mean, really from the headwater streams to the ocean, it's the whole watershed. Um, but the textbook definition of what an estuary is is, is tidally influenced, yes. What was the reaction around uh, your organization when you heard that the Delaware River was awarded uh, River of the Year? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's long overdue would be my first reaction. A lot of people consider me to be like the local cheerleader for our watershed. Um, then, you know, compared to the Chesapeake Bay, Long yeah. Island Sound, Puget Sound, other great American coastal watersheds, you know, the Delaware River Basin has long been undervalued. Um, it's sort of like the Eagles being underdogs. You know, the Delaware system has long been an underdog in, on the national landscape, even though, you know, we have 5% of the nation's population getting their drinking water from the system. And, you know, we have such a rich history um, and such a, a rich ecological treasure with some of the key signature resources in this watershed, you know, it's just long been regarded as sort of a working river, um, not as majestic as the Chesapeake, you know. Um, but um, that's really unfair because this watershed really is, um, you know, got so many hallmark features that really make it stand out. It really truly is a treasure. So we've always thought that it is, you know, uh, uh, one of the top uh, treasures of the nation in terms of coastal watersheds. And, you know, for it to get this award is, is well justified and, you know, it's been a long time coming. 
You mentioned the Chesapeake Bay. I saw a very scary documentary probably uh, 10 years ago on, you know, dead waters of the Chesapeake. And then the Susquehanna, of course, is, is uh, in danger of fracking. So we have some regional, you know, neighbors that are not doing, I think, as well as the Delaware. What would you attribute uh, the, the work on the federal level, the local level, and with, with organizations like yourself of helping the river regain the health of what it was in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, there's a lot I can say about that. Um, first of all, your observation is correct. So even though the Chesapeake Bay is sort of regarded as this big treasure um, compared to the Delaware, which is regarded as sort of a working river, um, the water quality the, and the health of the environmental resources is arguably much better in the Delaware than in the Chesapeake. And that is despite an incredible funding disparity. Hmm. So not, not many people know this in the sort of our region, but per capita or per basin area, it doesn't matter how you quantify it, but federal investment in the Delaware River Basin has been about 150th that of the Chesapeake watershed. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, 150th. That's so for federal dollars to restore or protect natural resources in the Delaware River Basin per capita or per basin area, about 150th. And, you know, that is probably partly because, you know, our nation's capital yep. sits on the Chesapeake and you have a lot of wealthy folks who have their homes on St. Michael's and Annapolis and boaters. And the Delaware system is, you know, largely a commercial river you know, in, in the urban corridor, but um, down in Delaware Bay, it's very rural, yeah. and you have these wonderful marshes that are ecological treasures, but they actually create barriers to people accessing the water as freely as, say, the western shore of the Chesapeake, where you have bluff habitat, and, you know, you can actually have your majestic views and anchor your sailboat right at the bottom of the bluff. You know, it's very different. We have a different system that, um, you know, sort of had, has a, a disconnect between the people and the water in many parts of the area. And then within the urban corridor, of course, the waterfront is you know, very highly developed. You know, we're trying to reconnect people to the water. Um, but um, compared to before World War II um, or even World War One, you know, a lot of people did connect to the river very directly, but then with the industrial de waterfront development, you know, people got walled off from the river. Oh, yeah. And people lost their connection. You know, they, they don't fish as, they didn't fish as much or boat as much, you know, or derive a livelihood directly from the river as much as before the waterfronts got redeveloped. But largely, the river is far, far cleaner uh, than it ever has been uh, since, you know, the Industrial Revolution. And, wow. you know, there's a ways to go, <clears throat> but it really does deserve the award. Um, you know, we've hundreds and hundreds of different fish and wildlife species, some that are really signature species of this watershed. Not a lot of people know. Uh, a really interesting fact about our river is that we have one of the largest freshwater tidal prisms of any coastal estuary in the world, even the Amazon. So there are many uh, nationally rare plants and animals that are uniquely adapted to freshwater tidal conditions. 
including freshwater tidal marshes that have 100 different plant species, many of which are nationally rare. Wow. Um, you know, so we have uh, this treasure trove of freshwater tidal adapted plants and animals. Uh, animals would be like uh, one of the animals I, I do a lot of work with are freshwater mussels. And um, this, there's a mussel species called the tidewater mucket. And the tidewater mucket is a you know, pretty rare national species because it's uniquely adapted to tidal freshwater conditions. And, you know, because we have such a big tidal freshwater, uh, I call it a prism, but it's really a volume of water, tidal freshwater uh, estuary, from, again, from Trenton to Wilmington, you know, that's good habitat for that rare species. Um, if you were in Chesapeake Bay, you might have a couple river miles you know, right around Annapolis or somewhere that that species might live. But here we've got this big area, you know, that is suitable habitat for that species and also for sturgeon and for uh, wild rice in the marshes and pickerel weed. You know, so it's a really interesting system because we have, uh, you know, really three different parts. We have, of course, the nine tidal Delaware River above Trenton, we have the urban tidal freshwater estuary, which is fascinating because some of the reasons I just talked about. And then we have the Delaware Bay, traditional saltwater estuary. And, uh, you know, Delaware Bay itself is a story because yeah. we actually have good enough water quality and conditions where we export fish and shellfish to other systems. Like if you go to Inner Harbor in the mighty Chesapeake, and you order blue crabs, you know, the Chesapeake blue crab industry, it is totally subsidized by Delaware Bay blue crabs. If you go down to Delaware Bay to most of the crab landing docks, uh, you'll see mostly Maryland license plates on the vehicles because they drive over from, you know, Baltimore area and load up on Delaware Bay crabs and then take them back to basically support their their um, industry there you know so same with oysters we export oysters uh, so we have we have really pretty good fisheries and shell fisheries in delaware bay and then of course up in your area we have the shad running again i mean we wish there were a lot more um but it's the longest sundam river east of the mississippi the big you know the big other important fact that so it deserves the river of the year for sure long overdue can you met yeah so can you mention about the mussels again and uh was there are there any other mollusks that you've used like oysters because i see that your organization you're based in wilmington right yeah well we're based in wilmington but again we're we cover the whole watershed I've seen you work with oh, students oh. and the Brandywine. I've seen you, uh, like, th there was a program that, this is what yeah, first well, caught my interest. I was like, wow, like, I, I, I was not the greatest science student, but I, and somewhere along the line, <laughs> I didn't learn that these mollusks can actually filter and clean water. And I, I'm looking at your, your paper here, and you've got, like, a, a, on your website, a picture of a fish tank, and one w without the, the mussels and one with, and the, the water quality is, of course, you know, very obvious, a difference between the two. Um, can you like right. explain and actually we helped uh, Fairmount Waterworks um, Museum. If you go to, to a website called MightyMuscle.com, uh, we work with them. They've got a time lapse video uh, of of that 
what I call the two-tank demo that you just mentioned, but it's actually time-lapse. You can actually see the muscles moving around and the water clearing over time if you're interested. Right, so from headwaters to the ocean, we work with all bivalve shellfish. Bivalves are, of course, two shells. So it's all your clams, mussels, oysters, and um, scallops, you know, all of the shelled um, bivalves, because all of them are filter-feeding animals. They feed on microscopic plants and animals. And um, most of my actual scientific research over 35 years has been on the water filtering rates, the benefits to water quality of these bivalve mollusks. So at PDE, we take that scientific information and we turn it into restoration projects aimed at clean water benefits. And so on the Delaware Bay, we work hard to restore oyster reefs. We work to build oyster reefs and ribbed mussels, these are saltwater mussels, into our living shoreline projects, which are like coastal stabilization projects to help salt marshes that are eroding. Um, and then in the non-tidal or the freshwater tidal part of the system, like your neck of the woods, right on up to the headwaters, we work to rebuild beds of native freshwater mussel species because all of them, whether it's saltwater, brackish, or, or freshwater, all of those bivalves, when they are abundant and when they are healthy, can filter up to 10 gallons of water a day per animal, all of them. It's amazing. So it really, <laughs> but freshwater mussels are the most endangered animals and plants in North America. And wow. so throughout, say, southeast Pennsylvania, we've been surveying streams for decades and really 95% of our streams that we've surveyed have no mussels left at all. In pre-settlement, there would have been up to a dozen species living in abundance in most places. So we've lost nature's ability to keep itself clean, partly because we've lost these big beds of mussels that would be filtering the water and helping keep the, you know, the water clear. Um, so a lot of our research is really to look at, well, how many oysters or freshwater mussels do you need to have a measurable improvement to water quality? Where could you potentially rebuild or enhance these populations? And then how do you do that? Uh, so, um, you know, if mussels are so endangered, you know, why do you think you can put them back? You know, what, why did they go away? These are the kinds of questions we focus on. So we've determined that many areas are probably not restorable yet, mm. but for freshwater mussels, but actually a lot of the areas, particularly around where you're located, um, you know, very there's a lot of opportunity to rebuild mussel beds, mainly by engineering the habitat that they live in, because you know there's so much stormwater flooding. Um, problems with the bottom habitat that they need to burrow into constantly getting washed downstream. So if you can stabilize the stream bottoms and create more beneficial habitat, then you might go from like zero mussels or maybe one mussel per square meter to maybe 50 mussels per square meter. And then you've got a 50-fold increase in your water filtration, natural water filtration. 
So, yeah, we've been working to restore muscles into different streams for about 15 years, developing the new technology. And, you know, we're at the point now where we'd like to go big with that, but the problem has been where do you get the muscles to use for restoration when they're so rare? So we're currently working to build a muscle hatchery where we'll propagate baby mussels and then have enough of the uh, animals to be able to use for restoration purposes. That's fascinating. Now, is that located on your campus in Wilmington, or is that located somewhere else? No, no, no. We're gonna we're you know we're still working on the agreements, but our plan is to build it at Bartram's Gardens in Southwest oh, yes. Philly on the Lower Schuylkill. Yep. Um, and then we would like to have satellite muscle rearing systems in place in each of the three states. So, for instance, one of the partners we're working with up your way, well, sort of to the west of you, is um, a Green Lane Reservoir, which is owned by Aqua, um, <clears throat> working with the Upper Montgomery Joint Water Authority. They have reservoirs, right? And yep. and we're also working at Longwood Gardens in uh, Delaware County. And in Delaware, we're working with some local nonprofits that have ponds. And then in New Jersey, we're working with an aquaponics farm. So the idea is we would basically produce baby mussels at this centrally located hatchery in Philly, but then have these uh, areas throughout the region that have good productive ponds or reservoirs where mussels can grow very quickly from microscopic size to a couple inches. And then that would basically be, you know, it's like in the spring, you want to harden up your garden plants before you put them out. So those ponds or those rearing ponds would basically enable our mussels to grow to a size that predators won't immediately chow down on them when you put them into their final resting places. So where you're trying to actually build the mussel beds. No, and I and I know uh, that you know we have our own reservoir up here that has I, I don't know do, do they help with algae blooms or do they help with any invasive species yeah. at all? <laughs> because they, I know that's been a problem with, in our reservoir. The, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, these are filter feeding animals that basically feed on microscopic particles. So if your reservoir or your pond, let's say has blooms of algae of a microscopic nature, like phytoplankton blooms, and that is a problem in a lot of areas, you know, noxious blooms of algae, which cause anoxia and all kinds of problems. If those are microscopic single-celled organisms that are blooming up, then yes, filter-feeding bivalves should be able to help. But if those um, invasive plants that are blooming up are macroscopic, like you know, duckweed or floating, um, you know, if if, if you can actually see the plants, then these these animals are not going to help at all because they only feed on microscopic suspended particles. Got it. Yeah, I think it's the latter because I remember they gave people canoes. And I wish I had the information, but uh, they gave people canoes and just said, go ahead, there it is, and just pull it out. So I I think it's to the latter, unfortunately, not the former. Yeah, right. Um, so right. if, it, if a science teacher on either side of the river in the New Hope or Lambertville areas uh, wanted to contact you, you know, they're all, I don't know, you know, different states, I don't know what the reopening programs are going to look like, but if they wanted to contact you to do something along the riverbanks when students are allowed to do that, what would be a good place to reach you or suggestions that you might have for good science 
faith-based activities on the river. We actually have a team of people that actually do muscle training workshops for teachers and watershed groups. And so those programs are really designed to, uh, you know, recruit people, if you will, for citizen science programs so that we can get people trained to identify muscles in the field and help us augment our muscle surveys with observations from the public or, you know, stream ambassador programs. Um, so we would hold like a, a one or two hour workshop where we introduce people to muscles and then take them somewhere to show them how to identify freshwater muscles in the field. And we've done this on ponds, we've done this on various streams, and then we've also done this on the Delaware River uh, tidal shorelines. You just have to time it so you go at low tide. And then you take them to a place where we know there are muscles so that they can get their search image down, know what to look for. And then when they go out with their school groups or what have you, watershed groups, then they find muscles or don't find muscles. They provide the data reports through an online portal that we maintain for mm -hmm. citizen science muscle surveys. That's an example. We're also, once we start having uh, our baby muscles produced in the hatchery, we are now developing new curricula for teachers called Muscles in the Classroom. You know, the two-tank demo that you talked about mm -hmm. that you saw on our website, well, the plan there is to give teachers the tanks and the muscles to basically do the demonstrations with live animals in the classroom. That's awesome. And, and to do experiments with them. And then maybe once the muscles get bigger, they take them to their ornamental ponds or what have you and do muscle gardening programs. So we're, we're working on a whole series of ideas for the future. Um, you know, these aren't funded, so we need to raise money to operationalize this stuff. For instance, we have some funding to build our hatchery, but we don't have any funding yet to actually grow the muscles <laughs> or to do the restoration projects or the research or the education outreach programs. So, but we're, we're pretty good at, you know, putting in proposals for grants and you know, so I would say any teachers interested in working with us, maybe we even help them uh, or we get their help to write grant proposals so we could pilot some new initiatives with them as our guinea pigs, for instance. But uh, a lot of folks think we have a lot of funding to give out. We, we're, we're totally a nonprofit that lives and dies by funding ourselves. So, you know, we struggle all the time to stay afloat. Um, and but we are also called the partnership for the Delaware Estuary because we collaborate and partner with everybody, hundreds of different groups, and that's where we really actually have our best our best uh, progress because it's really through collaboration and shared best that we get things done. And that's that's fascinating. I, I I'm I'm going to direct. Uh, I would like to to get your information so that listeners can direct any any donations they would like to give to you. But before I do that, I, I'd also like to mention I'm a teacher myself for over 20 years in New Jersey. And my first job was in Cape May County. And and look, I, I'm a, I was an English and history teacher. But I went on the science field trips to the bay where, of course, it was the birds flying in and feeding on uh, the horseshoe crabs, which is also a very unique uh, believe it or not, that I don't know a lot of people would know about. And I've had a couple friends right. that would say the New Jersey. Like, so for people that maybe aren't into the aquatic part of uh, the estuary, 
the amount of birds that New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania and Delaware get because of the health of the river and the estuary and the bay, I, I've had people tell me it's one of the best birding areas in the country. Right. Well, we are a key uh, stop on the Mid-Atlantic Flyway. And as you just mentioned, one of the really signature features of the Delaware Bay area that I didn't even mention is the world's largest spawning population of horseshoe crabs. And those crabs lay their eggs on the beaches during May and June under the full moons. It's a very sexy sort of strategy. <laughs> and then you have these birds they, that time their pole-to-pole migrations just to take advantage of that situation with the crabs on the beaches because they're super energy rich, those eggs. And, you know, that's just an example of, of the many, you know, hundreds of stories that exist um, something else you might just want to uh, mention to your viewers or uh, if anyone wants to learn more information about some of these stories like the horseshoe crabs and shorebird migration or the oysters, uh, PDE produces every five years what we call a state of the estuary report. It's an indicator-based report, and it looks at everything from water quantity, water quality, uh, climate change, everything from ice dams on the river to temperature precip, and then it looks at all of the signature fish and wildlife species like sturgeon and horseshoe crab and um, and basically tells the story of status and trends based on scientific data. So we work with many different groups to compile data every five years and then produce this report, which is available on our website. It's called the State of the Estuary Report. And there's a hundred different stories in there, and there's some nice uh, call-out boxes and features. It is a bit technical, um, but it is for teachers and for uh, reporters looking for stories about the system, about why the Delaware is this American River, um, you know, award winner. Uh, that document is 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 a really good place to get a sense of the system and why why it's so special. And where can uh, listeners uh, contribute uh, or learn more about your program? This is plural. Yes, yeah. DelawareEstuary.org. Awesome. Uh, anything else to add, Dr. Krieger? No, no. Thank you for your time and thank you for your interest. And really thanks to American Rivers for, um, you know, promoting this system for this national award. Dr. Danielle Krieger of the Delaware Estuary Organization, thank you very much for being here on Bridge Street. Really appreciate your time.